afraid he's got no choice. I believe I broke his jaw. <laughs> Stamp. I'm impressed. Right, we don't have a lot of time, hon. Whatever you got to say, say it now. It's the Popcorn Digest with Gareth and Andy. Hello and welcome to Popcorn Digest, the podcast about the films you love and some you don't. I'm your host, Gareth Green, and joining me as always is my full-time co-host and part-time action hero, Andrew Raphael. You know, I'm a Scientologist, so I know all about action. (laughs) And today we're once again spending time with notorious kook and enemy of the couch, Tom Cruise, as we take on Mission Impossible (laughs) 2. But is this much maligned sequel an overlooked gem? Or is the only impossible mission we face today is the one that requires us to finish the film? Find out after the trailer. Good morning, Mr. Hunt. Sorry I barged in on your vacation. This is your mission, should you choose to accept it. Should you or any member of your iron force be caught or killed, the secretary will disavow all knowledge of your actions. You gotta be kidding. This message will destruct in five seconds. Tommy the Thetan Slayer is back once again <laughs> and trying to kill himself for entertainment because that seems to be the only legitimate way out of the Church of Scientology. <laughs> Ethan Hunt is fighting against villains who would see the release of a man-made virus in the general population, so pharmaceutical companies can rake in profits selling the vaccine. Well, if the last three years are anything to go by, you really fucked the pooch on that one, didn't you, Hunt? <laughs> Do Grey Scott is in villain duties as Dulverine, a disavowed IMF agent with one thing on his mind. Richard Roxburgh's tight ass. Thandawi Newton stars as the love interest Nia, who quickly finds herself sold into the sex trade by international pimp Ethan Hunt. <laughs> Ultimately, Andy and I are here to just ask why Paramount have tried to bury Mission Impossible 2 faster than David Miscarriage has buried his wife. Now, now I'm legally required to say, allegedly. <laughs> She's dead. She's dead, you know it. She's dead. But legally, I'm required to say allegedly. She's dead. She's totally dead. Oh. Who knows if that one will make the cut. <laughs> so, Andy, Mission Impossible 2. What's your experience with the Mission Impossible franchise? Let's begin with that. Is it a franchise you're fond of? Uh, our listeners will know that we are Bond fans. Yeah, yeah. And there's often an overlap with the Mission Impossible franchise and modern Bond in terms of the fan base. So what do you think of Mission Impossible? Um, it, it's a series I'm fond of, but only recently. And you can almost divide this series into two eras, Mm -hmm. which is one to three. Yes. Which were the growing years. And then four and beyond, which are, we are now confident at what we are doing. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Yes. And my experience with Mission Impossible is very spotty, because I think the only film I've actually seen at the cinema was the last one, Fallout. I think all the other films I caught either by in the old days, renting the video. Oh, those were the days. Yeah, or just watching it on Blu-ray. So I'm pretty sure 
the first two I saw just renting the video after the fact. Yeah. And literally just watching it once at the time. And then skipped the third one completely, fourth one. I don't think it was until the fifth one was released when I watched that on Blu-ray. Went back and watched the fourth one and then the sixth. And then I think I'm pretty I'm pretty sure I did a marathon once where I just watched them all through. Yeah. Uh, one to six and i think that was the first time i saw the third one properly all the way through so yeah very spotty it's not a series i've closely followed and it's and i think because i'm such a huge james bond fan at the time when this series was starting out it's still seen as the rival series but i feel like when it first started it was very much treading in bond's patch like it was trying to get too much like the american james bond I think the second one is the most like that. Yeah, right down to some plot points. Yeah, so it kind of made me slightly actively dis not dislike, but maybe just not warm to the series yeah. because we kind of go through those points. We get very defensive and territorial about like our yeah. our franchises and these are our series. And then you kind of grow up a bit and go, What was I doing? <laughs> I did that. I did that all the way through my like teens and yeah. into my twenties where I was like, This is my stuff and I like only this stuff. So everything else i think there was an element as well where i was like uh i don't quite buy tom cruise trying to be a tough action star at the time um yeah yeah i don't know i think it was just my just real my my loyalty to james bond at the time that really made me not warm to the series and again it's it, it really took it took its time to find its feet anyway and yeah by the time we get to ghost protocol and rogue nation this series really finds its feet. Yeah. Yeah, and I think because they they amped up the ensemble nature of it, and because we were going through a time in Jane's Bond where maybe they weren't having enough fun with it or mm-hmm. they were trying to have fun with it but just doing it all wrong, Mission Impossible actually started to trump James Bond in that department. Yeah, it started to scratch that itch. And, you know, there's a lot of James Bond fans who when comparing the later Craig films with the Mission Impossible series as it's found its feet from Ghost Protocol onwards, a lot of people are very much in agreement that uh, Mission Impossible's actually been releasing the better films. (laughs) And I have loved several of Daniel Craig's films, but I think Mission Impossible Fallout possibly trumps anything that Daniel Craig has done since Casino Royale. Yeah. And yeah, and I not... really enjoyed No Time to Die a lot. Yeah, and that's it sounds ever more controversial to say that, but definitely when it comes to delivering the kinetic action, kinetic pacing, mm-hmm. and that strong sense of fun, not really goofy fun, but just like just really entertaining action adventure it's kind of walks the line as well like it it tells the line really well in terms of like how fun it is whilst also remaining quite grounded in the later films yeah and it's just something that the bond films just really have struggled at for sure i definitely say in the last decade and a bit doesn't that cover like one film (laughs) in bond years now (laughs) yeah it's a, a strange kettle of fish um Maybe we're going into sort of Bond territory here, but yeah, it's definitely down to who's involved. And I think it comes down to the fact that with the Mission Impossible films, they are spearheaded by Tom Cruise. They are his movies. Yes, yeah. You know, no matter what you say about Tom Cruise, he is a very passionate person. Yes, yeah, he is. And I think for me, 
at the moment, that is something that is lacking with the Bond production team. I don't feel that they have the passion for it yes. as they once did. You can kind of tell at the moment with how things are going on with getting a new film, a new era started, where it's just like, oh, well, you know. That's it, yeah, well, yeah. You know, I may eat my words because, you know, you never know what's going on behind the scenes, but it does feel like deathly slow. Yeah, it also feels like it's uh, that they're almost burdened by it and burdened by the gossip yeah. about it. And it's like, oh, do we have to talk about the Bond thing again? You know, yeah. that type of thing. And it's like, why aren't we excited about this? I think especially with Barbara. I think Michael is, but he's just, you know, he's getting to that age yes, now where he's wanting to wind down anyway. And I, I'm not 100% sure why his son hasn't taken over in that role. Because I know he's done a lot of associate producer stuff, Greg Wilson. Uh, I'm not sure why that hasn't happened yet in terms of him ascending to that next level yeah. and taking over because I feel like it's a, a Eon such a close-knit team it definitely needs new blood and someone with real passion for it and that's what the Mission Impossible films have yes. especially now with with the double-headed team of uh, Tom Cruise and Christopher McQuarrie they've really got a solid team yeah. there so I'm very interested as, as to what's going to happen with this two-part film whether this is the end for Tom Cruise because I know recently they've discussed about doing um a ninth film it seems that like it may have been pitched as being the last film but they've enjoyed themselves so much that yeah um yeah a, a Cruise wants to come back but at the same time I would say that Cruise and I can't believe I'm saying this is starting to look his age a bit yeah it's like this is the perfect should be the perfect ending to close perfect the book opportunity to close the book yeah. yeah i just hope he doesn't do a vin diesel <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> with, the, with the fast 10 thing um, i mean that's what i would say about the mission impossible series um as well in terms of my experience of it um it's, it's always been a series i've enjoyed i watched the the first one when it came out on vhs and uh, rented it from the uh, video shop danny's film factory i rented it from there Really enjoyed it, watched it once, moved on. <laughs> Sounds like you just popped into your brother's room. <laughs> Danny's Film Factory. You don't want to borrow his films. <laughs> I've seen some of the films he keeps at the bottom of his wardrobe. <laughs> um, <laughs> but let's let's just say they have a very do Grey Scott Richard Roxburgh vibe to them, you know. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, um and I i I have a like a core memory of Buying Mission Impossible 2 on pirated VHS from a market near me. Oh, you rebel. I know. Yeah, just, <laughs> just so rebellious. But yeah, yeah. so I, I got I got quite a lot of watch out of it. And I used to really enjoy Mission Impossible 2. I've seen all of the films since then. I've seen all of them in the cinema. And I do agree that Tom Cruise obviously is the driving force. He's the one with the passion yeah. for the series. But I don't think that the series like found its true footing until he met somebody that could match him on that passion for filmmaking. But obviously, um, with a different kind of background, like I think Christopher McQuarrie brings a passion for cinema history and that kind of thing, and a passion for form. Yeah. And those two together have met each other just at this point in the series, and it's just gone straight up. It's transcended any position it was before. And uh, I think, yeah, you're right, that you can literally put a line through it and cut this series in two of like like you say the the years where it's trying to find its feet and i did like the idea of each film would have its own style and own filmmaker i think they were bullshitting because mission impossible 2 is just so wildly different from the first one yeah yeah but i did like that notion 
but it seems like once Christopher McQuarrie's come on, he's really steadied the ship and then took it to places that we never thought the series would ever get to. Yeah, yeah. And it is one of my favourite series now. It's one of those things that I, I marathon when I'm ill because it's just, it's comforting. It's like, it's really good action, really well made. It's It's got its silly films like Mission Impossible 2. There's no film in the series, in my opinion, though, that is a true dud. Yeah, yeah. There's yeah. films that are lacking compared to the other but there's no film in it that's like truly shits the bed um although yeah. many would say it's this one <laughs> yeah it, it's interesting as well but I, I think from the third one it's just been an upward trajectory yes yeah really because the third one is even though it's still in that kind of finding its feet phase it's definitely a dry run for what is going to follow that's a transitional film it is yeah uh, that that's the film where they're really starting to get to grips with what the series could be. I think as well that something that contributes to the inconsistency in those first three films is the the length of time between the films as well. Because I think yeah, the first one's ninety six. This one, mm. uh, the one we're talking about today, is two thousand. Then the third one's two thousand and six. And I remember when the third one came out, there was loads of press about. Have we waited too long for Mission Impossible Three and all this? And it's just, it was just all bullshit. But yeah, I, I remember that a six year gap since Ghost Protocol. They've been coming out at a much more successive rate yeah. as well. Like there's been a much more consistent release pattern. Now. Like these these films have felt more together. Yes, especially when compared to the you know James Bond as well, where they've started to become more sporadic. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> and these crazy. have become more more regular so i think there's there's that factor as well i think where it feels like mission impossible has just become the more reliable series in Mm -hmm. in loads of different aspects uh but yeah it's weird with with mission impossible too because this is now i think the outlier it is there's nothing in it that has had any kind of i mean we'll, we'll wait and see for the these new films but it's the only film uh that the later films do not reference whatsoever yeah, because you know the first one we've had loads of stuff. We've had you know White Widow as the yeah. daughter of Max. We've got Kittredge in this new film. Yeah, all that kind of stuff. Uh, loads of stuff from three. Yeah, and this one just completely gets brushed under the rug when it comes to any kind of callback. I mean, I, I will say I watched the first one. I did a double bill of the first one and the second one in preparation for this episode. One because. I really enjoyed the first one anyway, so it was just an opportunity to give it a whirl. But also because I wanted to familiarise myself once more with that jump in terms of style. Because essentially, other than the title, you could put these films into two separate action franchises. But just before we speak primarily about Mission Impossible 2, I want to just ask one last question on the topic of this um, Bond versus Ethan Hunt thing. Yeah. Because there's a very, like, Batman versus Superman vibe to the two of them. Yeah. Bond being Batman, concerned with the death of his parents and all that, yada, yada. And then we have Ethan Hunt, who's Superman. He's kind of invulnerable. Yeah. If you were in trouble and a secret agent had been tasked with saving your life, (laughs) who would you rather that be? As much as I love James Bond, definitely Ethan Hunt, because Ethan Hunt cares about every single human life. It's right, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) He really does. That's his whole shtick. (laughs) But yeah, yeah, that's what I would say as well. Like, and and even if Bond saved me, 
you still wouldn't be happy about it. I'm pretty sure I'm guaranteed to have some sort of injury coming out of it, to be honest. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. There, would, <laughs> there wouldn't be broken bones involved. Or, you know, non-threatening bullet wounds. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then he might try and shag you. Yeah. That Randy Bond. Um, oh. But yeah, so anyway, anyway, moving back to Mission Impossible 2. So before we do speak about the film properly, I do want to go over some of the context about when the film was released and uh, the making of the film. Now, there wasn't too much online about the making of Mission Impossible 2, and I did actually watch the making of documentary that's included on the DVD. It was just a lot of bump about, this is how we did this scene, this is how we did that scene. There was nothing about the actual writing or the production or that kind of thing. The proper fluff piece of that time. Exactly, yeah. Entertainment Weekly. <laughs> I know, I'm, I'm surprised it wasn't like presented by Mario Lopez. <laughs> a half the Save by the Bell cast. John Stamos. <laughs> <laughs> so, um... The one thing that I do know about this film, and it's not uncommon for this type of film to have been made in this way, but many of the action scenes had been pre-planned before even the script had been written. Yeah. So when Robert Town was tasked with, um, he was provided a story treatment by, I believe it was Ronald Dean Moore. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody knows from Star Trek Next Generation, Battlestar Galactica, For All Mankind at the moment, which is supposed to be excellent, and yeah. uh, Brannon Braga. So they wrote, were on story duties, and Robert Town, who wrote the first one, he was back to write the second one as well. Mm. Now, that's pretty much it. <laughs> now, yeah. there are other things that happened, like Ian McKellen, for example, was offered the role of the mission commander, but had to drop out due to commitments on Lord of the Rings. He's spoken about that before. It does say on the Wikipedia that he uh, passed on the role, but I remember reading from Ian McKellen himself that he actually accepted it and then had to drop out due to a change in the shooting schedule on Lord of the Rings. The timing works out as well, doesn't it? Because this would have been shot in 99 at some point. So, yeah, that, that makes complete sense. I mean, the, the whole planning action sequences and locations out prior to finalising the script is is pretty standard when it comes to these films. The I mean, whole Bond series was based on that, yeah. Yeah, Bond did that for years, and they still do that now with the Mission Impossible films, where they plan all their set pieces and then weave the story around them. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, and it's something... I think the Bond team has, has shied away from it a little bit, but I actually think to its detriment, because you, you get you have the opposite problem in a way where the, the action scenes sometimes feel tacked on, whereas if it's planned well ahead of schedule and the story has to include it, you actually it makes it feel more part of the story and the kinetics uh, of the thing. It's an interesting thing when you're doing big action films like this. It's a completely different kind of process, I think, than when you do a regular kind of film. So yeah, I think there needs to be that kind of give and take where the story and the action meets in the middle. Yeah. You can't just write the script without any sense of action and then try and crowbar it in in places where it doesn't belong. You, you can see the films that struggle with that and the films that don't. You can even see it in the Bond films as well. To be honest, the, the Bond films have struggled with that ever since that production team took over because I think the only two films that really have succeeded in that regard were the two Martin Campbell films. And mm -hmm. he's the like one of the the only director who really understood that. And then, you know, the later Pierce Brosnan films 
Timon overdies to a less extent because I think actually that that works merging its action sequences. But say something like World Is Not Enough, yes, where there's yeah. such a disconnect between the the drama scenes and the action scenes, where the action scenes just seem like like promotional material for the second unit director. Mm, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's it. And you get you get to the point where like films like the the Bourne series and and Mission Impossible were integrating their action much better mm-hmm. than the Bond series. I mean, it <laughs> feels like weird that we're shitting on the Bond series so much, but yeah, it, it has felt like that for quite some time where you do get the odd film that where it all works great Yeah, in that regard. Not that the other films don't have merits, because they do, but yeah, in that aspect, they have struggled with, with mm-hmm. maintaining yeah. pace, I think. As much as I love the Daniel Craig films, I find them hard to do a rewatch because they do suffer a lot from pacing issues. Mm. Uh, either they're too fast, like something like Quantum of Solace, or they're just too sluggish and plodding and sullen. Yeah. Um, which is nothing... I don't think you can accuse any of the Mission Impossible films of being... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's interesting, because, yeah, you can, you've got those three big action franchise, because I don't... You can't count fast... Uh, the Fast and Furious because they're just a different kind of animal. I think. Yeah, I, they, they don't. They do do stunts, but they're just not. It's not like the you know. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. not like doing Bourne or Mission Impossible or James Bond. There, they're kind no, of you're the absolutely three. right. One of the action scenes that they did conceive of before even writing the scripts was that Tom Cruise wanted a rock climbing sequence, and that's become iconic in and of itself really the images of tom cruise hanging off that cliff has become something of a touchstone point for this entire series now (laughs) in terms of what what has to happen in each film we have to yeah do something bigger than that and then into the next one and bigger than that and so on do you think tom cruise had been watching star trek (laughs) five i've actually wrote in my notes that the best thing that could have happened during that sequence is if he would have taken like one more climb up and then accidentally like past captain kirk <laughs> whilst he was having a chat with uh, with spock they missed a trick there they really needed leonard nimoy to be anthony hopkins oh. uh, his role and then it would have been perfect waiting at the top <laughs> yeah i mean it's interesting because despite the fact that we've praised uh, the mission impossible film series up until this point this is the film where tom cruise is at his most wanky yeah uh <laughs> shitty shit eating grin i mean i don't like ethan hunt in this film no and that that climbing sequence it is the big stunt in the film but unlike all the other big stunts in all the other films it's completely superfluous to the story yeah yeah you could instantly just take it out it's literally just him showing off <laughs> so yeah immediately the something off-piste about this film yeah. from the get-go. And there's something about Tom Cruise's shit-eating grin as well that once you notice, you can't unnotice. And I can't say really anything because, you know, I'm British and I have terrible teeth. But Tom Cruise has got, like, a front-middle tooth. <laughs> and once you notice, you can't stop noticing, and then you start looking for it. But whenever you see his face centrally framed, one of his, like, front teeth is in the middle. It's almost like he's got three front teeth. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy. It's a superpower. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I've got a third tooth. I've got more teeth than naturally possible. Oh. <laughs> I mean, he had a really like crazy 
couple of years because I think like he did. Really? Did he? Um, Tom Cruise a no, crazy couple this, of years. He, 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 You're joking. I mean, <laughs> Not even in his personal life, but I'm just talking about the films that he made yeah. during this time because you, you, I think in this time period he did, uh, you know, spent a whole year on Eyes Wide Shut and then he must have done Magnolia yeah. after that and then probably this straight after that. Uh, yeah, I feel like this was the era of Tom Cruise at his most risky in terms of like the films that he was doing it, and at, at, a, and at his most intense, yeah, <laughs> yeah, for sure. And even yeah. in, in terms of like the filmmakers he was working with, I think he even personally chose John Woo for this film as well. So yeah, he would have yeah. been familiar with you know films like Face Off in terms of what to expect with this style. That's what he wanted, but also like you say, Magnolia is is one that particular performance, and even a few years later, you get Collateral like his first villainous role. It feels like there's a period yeah, of Tom yeah. Cruise's career where he was not averse to taking risks, whereas now, even though I think the Mission Impossible series is so much better now, I don't think Tom Cruise is in the habit of taking risks anymore, or has been for a long time. Well, n- not with his film choices, but maybe in other departments. Oh yeah, oh, I mean, for <laughs> sure in other departments. If <laughs> he's fulfilling his risk factor in 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 other ways, I mean, but um, what's he doing off shot? He's got he's got to be involved in some really shady human ritual type business, hasn't he? Yeah, because there's nobody. That's he's got that... his dick in a jar. <laughs> I think I, I honestly, I think like it's one of those where he's you know some some evil Lovecraftian entity lives beneath his skin. There's something going on with Tom Cruise that scares me. He's being protected by the aliens. Yeah, that's that's true. Yeah, um, that is true. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's... praise be to L. Ron Hubbard. <laughs> and what what's the name of the creature? The the alien god that they have, Zenu. Zenu, yeah. Zenu. It's Zenu. Yeah, Zenu. What a load of shit. Um... <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Talking about Tom Cruise and that whole st- thing in his life as well. Um, uh, uh, there was yeah. a uh, interview with Thunderwe Newton that was published a few years back about her experience on this film and about her experience through the industry. And it was really revealing and really personal. And she came across really well in it. I do really like her quite a lot. And she did say that she had an unpleasant onset, exp- several unpleasant onset experiences with Cruise during the making of this film. And it wasn't like they didn't get along or there was a butting of heads or there was like conflict between them. It was more so that. I think they struggled with the chemistry side of things. She says, Cruz was heavily stressed over the expectations of the sequel being good and was upset during the shooting of um, this particular scene because she had the shittiest lines, in his opinion. Yeah. The two decided to reverse roleplay each other as practice. However, it was unhelpful for her and pushed her into a place of terror and insecurity. I mean, this is like one of her first biggest films, like standing alongside Tom Cruise. And uh, after the shooting was finished that day, she contacted Jonathan Demi, telling him what had happened. And looking back on that day, Newton said about Cruz, bless him. And I really do mean bless him because he was trying his damnedest. (laughs) But once you read that and then you find out that it was uh, Tom Cruise's then wife, Nicole Kidman, suggested Thunderwe Newton for the role in the film. And I was like, like, talk about throwing her to the wolves. <laughs> if there's anybody in the world that knows just how prickly and hard it might be to create chemistry with Tom Cruise, it would be Nicole Kidman. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That must be like her ritual sacrifice. Like if I just yeah. sacrifice one 
one, <laughs> one virgin actress to Tom Cruise every year. Oh. I might get the kids. <laughs> I did look at some of that today, and as well, it just sounds like yeah, she's not got like any kind of beef with him. It's no, just not the at fact all. that he's yeah, he's such an intense presence and wants to get everything right. Yeah, an all or nothing kind of guy. Yeah, and naturally, some people are gonna have kind of ways of working that don't marry up to that don't marry up to that intensity and you can't expect that and it seems that flowed all the way up through to the director relationship as well because him and john woo really butted heads Mm. over how things should be done and apparently he's the only director for the series that was never asked back to do the follow-up yeah every other director has been asked back Brian De Palma was asked to do this one and he turned them down. J.J. Abrams was asked to do the fourth one, he turned them down and so forth. John Woo is the only director where Tom Cruise decided, yeah, I need to move on to another director. Yeah, Because you can see it on screen as well that their styles jar. I think that's why this film does feel a little bit off-piece because they don't really work that well together, I don't think. Because John Woo's all about having stunt doubles uh i think he wanted to use a bit more cgi i mean you talk about john woo and stunt doubles if you watch like the, there yeah. are a couple of his films that are really not made to be watched in like 4k high resolution because <laughs> <laughs> i mean if you watch face off yeah and you look at some of the stunt doubles they use they might as well be a different color you know <laughs> it's it's really that bad they change hair colors. yeah exactly the, the hair is constantly changing it's like it's like michael myers in halloween 4 yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> and uh, and john travolta is always like putting on and losing weight depending on the, the, the action shot <laughs> <laughs> but yeah whereas tom cruise this was kind of the start of that whole thing just wanted to do all his own stunts and wanted to push the boat out. He wanted you to believe that he was doing all this. Yeah. And fair play to him, but God knows, I do not understand what the insurance situation is with any of these films. No. I don't know how they let him, to be honest, with the stuff like this. The insurance representative that he must deal with constantly must be just like a nervous wreck. Yeah. Just like every time the phone rings, I imagine he has a, like a, a red phone on his desk that when it rings, it's Tom Cruise. That's the Tom Cruise line. <laughs> the Tom Cruise phone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and when it um, rings, he just trembles. And apparently as well, um, and this is something that we've mentioned before on this show when we've discussed other Tom Cruise films, that John Woo was locked out of the editing room at some point as well, and Tom Cruise took over the uh, post-production mm-hmm. of the film, and very much like what happened with The Mummy. Yeah. He must have been involved at some point because I know that the the rough cut of this ended up being three and a half hours. Three and a half hours long, yeah. Which is why there's a couple of leaps in logic uh, (laughs) because the studio were very adamant that it was going to be two hours. Well, I mean, that was the thing that I remembered about it when I first watched it on um, pirated VHS. And that was, I didn't quite get what was happening. Yeah. Or uh, what the whole thing was with the... Uh, the scientist. But yeah, I, I didn't didn't really get what was going on with that character at first. Yeah. But, I mean, I'll talk about the film now as well. Yeah, just yeah. Just in terms of my opinion of it. This is another one of the films that we're covering that I would describe as a perfect culmination of what is a three out of five star film. Like an Empire <laughs> three out of five film. 
yeah. it's got some really big flaws that can't be overlooked and i think one of them we've already touched upon is that ethan hunt is a very unlikable character in this film yes and also that it's a complete departure from the previous one i quite enjoy that but at the same time that's what i wanted from this was more of a continuation of what had been established in the previous one yeah but overall though as a john woo fan anyway I still quite like this film. I, I like its action. I like its overblown direction. It entertains me in a way that, like, it might not be the highest art out there. It might not be the best film ever, but it's very entertaining and it's a lot of fun. And it's a lot of fun even when it's at its goofiest and its silliest. Yeah, it's easily the goofiest of the series. <laughs> yes, and and I love that the villains in it, like Dougray Scott and Richard Roxborough, like Bert and Ernie. You know, <laughs> they've got <laughs> they've got a very a very suspect friendship yeah one that's might you know subscribe to the whole sub and dom thing yeah but yeah i do quite enjoy this film what do you think of mission impossible 2 yeah well i enjoyed it a lot more this time around than i did the previous time because i think i watched them in sequence the previous time and yeah it does stand out and i think it's slightly detrimental watching it as part of the series yeah but if you're watching it on its own and on its own terms it is quite a lot of fun if you combine to its goofiness and mm-hmm. it's heightened it's cheesy it's a very cheesy film very cheesy you know you can you can smell it uh, <laughs> you can smell the cheese it's riddled with mold if you can get past that it's quite a good watch although i would say and i think this is probably prevalent for the first four mission impossible films it does fall apart at the end I think all the first four Mission Impossible films have slightly lacklustre climaxes. Mm. I'm not a particular fan of the TGV ending of the first one. It's It doesn't hold up uh, effects-wise, it, it, and it always looked a bit wonky. I like I it. I think for me as well, I find it weird that they used the TGV when the Eurostar was around, and it TGVs don't go through the tunnel. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't marry up. If you're not familiar with that, he wouldn't bother you. But it doesn't marry up. This one ends with the fast show's big punch up. Um, you know the big was it the big fight? The big fight. Yeah, yeah. That's basically what this film ends with. Yeah, it starts off as kung fu with motorbikes, yeah. then a duel, and then the third film's very anticlimactic. That is the most anticlimactic, in my opinion. And then the fourth film's. Not quite as anticlimactic, but its end set piece is not quite as impressive yeah. as some of the stuff that that is before it. In my opinion, the fourth film is missing like a particular story beat that I think might have been wrote, written yeah. in at some point. But there's like some, I feel like there's a space for a twist, and yeah. it's been written out. And so yeah. for a lot of the finale of the film, for a lot of that last third or second half, it kind of just maintains a level rather than going, you know, like taking any big leaps or anything like that. Yeah, I think the film that really sticks the landing when it comes to its ending is the most recent one, the Fallout. Yeah, for that, sure. Um, that that helicopter sequence at the end is fantastic. Uh, it's and unbelievable. Ticking time bomb is great as well. Like that works beautifully. So yeah, this this film ends with the big fight. The one thing I do like about that big fight though is that in a couple of the shots you can see like planes coming into land behind them, just in you know, obviously Sydney airports <laughs> nearby or something like that. It made me think like if somebody looked out of the window and saw these two men fighting with motorbikes and then like grappling to the death, they must be going. Yeah, this is this sure is Sydney, all right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you're arriving in Australia. That looks like Australia down there. <laughs> 
but also as well, like the the other thing with this film is that I, I was reading earlier today that and it kind of I didn't think about it at the time, but it's completely right that one of the other big central set pieces of this film, which is the the zip line down the middle of the building, mm-hmm. is pretty much a slightly bigger yes more showy-offy repeat of the big stunt in the first film. That's exactly... When I mentioned before <laughs> that it repeats some of the same beats, that in particular yeah. is the one where they've just gone, we're going to do that again, but bigger. And it yeah. it doesn't doesn't quite work that way. I didn't mind that set piece as much this time, actually. Yeah. I think, again, just because I hadn't watched the first one beforehand, so it didn't stick out as much as being yeah. a rip-off of itself. Definitely, I think the word for me would be... It's ever so slightly off piste. Yes, I think yeah. everything's not quite right <laughs> in a way. Nothing's bad. I'd agree. But yeah, it's not quite right. <laughs> That's the best way to describe this film. And it feels like every scene can be undone by noticing some particular element or something that yeah. you hadn't seen before that makes you go, Haha, "That's a bit weird." And um, for example, yeah. <laughs> the uh, the whole rock climbing sequence comes to a head with Ethan Hunt retrieving some glasses that have been shot down onto the top of this cliff. And inside the glasses, he puts them on and his mission begins to play out. But what I noticed on this particular watch through was that he doesn't stop looking around like his head's always moving. And I'm like, just stay fucking still so I can see what's happening. But all the time, the background, he's just like looking back and forth like a robot. It's because he wanted every shot to move and be kinetic. You can tell, you can tell. This is a still shot, I'm going to move my head director. (laughs) Just so something's moving. But even when it shows you like the POV from inside the glasses, all the background just keeps on moving whilst I'm like, I'm trying to keep track of you guys. Yeah. But it's just like things like that that I kept noticing. It's part of the charm of the film is that kind of like, it's kinetic at the expense of all sense yeah that is the primary thing that they've gone at this film with with is that it's going to be a kinetic film it's also going to have a shit on a slow motion in that very kind of like school of garth morangi way it's a 90 minute film stretched out to two hours yeah <laughs> because of the slow-mo there's literally a sequence where thandoe newton steps off a boat and walks down a pier and then kisses Gray scott and it does cut away to tom cruise during a sequence several times but that whole sequence took nearly three minutes. Yeah, there's some very John Woo editing choices in this film, which only serve to heighten the goofiness. And I think that style of making films in a Western setting probably was starting to get out of fashion. Yes, I think so, yeah. Maybe not when this film was made, but just after, because you have, you know, th- this film fits in with that late 90s, early 2000s action film like when we you know we, we talk about bond we've got die another day following not long after and then you get born which changes everything if anything i will say it's it's like a um post and pre 9-11 thing it is yeah where the whole landscape of action filmmaking and the idea of terrorism completely was flipped on its head in the western sense at least anyway and suddenly like films like this were suddenly completely out of fashion then. I also imagine that's why it took six years for them to make three, because they were probably struggling with what to do with that. Yeah, yeah. Although it's interesting that that this film had created its own problem in that sense, because the first film is not like that at all, because that's not really an action film 
in the traditional sense. It's not really at all. It's like a thriller. I think this film is a result of the studio wanting it to be a more action-led series. Yeah. Because, yeah, the Brian De Palma film is, is more of a traditional thriller. It's more of a North by Northwest kind of thing. It is, yeah. Whereas this is... Well, it's interesting that I think John Woo was up for directing a James Bond film at some point. It never quite happened, but this is his attempt at doing that, I think. This is John Woo's Bond film. Yeah, I, I think <laughs> if he if he had, it would have been a the die another day. Yeah, it would definitely would have been. Of the series, yeah. it would have been along those lines. Definitely. But um, one particular thing that we haven't spoken about yet that we, we should do, and it's the piece of trivia that everybody knows about this film, and that is that it essentially robbed Dugray Scott of the role of Wolverine. So in an alternate universe, yeah. Dugray Scott is not in Mission Impossible 2. Hugh Jackman's in Mission Impossible 2. <laughs> and Dugray Scott is Wolverine and enjoying Hugh Jackman's career. Well, I was thinking about this, actually, whilst I was watching the film. And I actually wonder if that would have actually still happened had he played Wolverine in that first X-Men film. I... I don't think it don't would think it would have. And I like yeah. I don't I don't mind Dugray Scott, but he doesn't seem like he has the presence. No, he doesn't have the star power. Yes, yeah, exactly, yeah. The X Factor. Yeah, because although Hugh Jackman was seen as a wild card when he was cast in that film, I mean he's more than proved over time that he has that extra factor. Yeah. For sure. I think it's also because he's got a lot of strings to his bow as well, because he can do men the tougher hard action stuff but then he's a he's a song and dance man yeah as well he's got those two sides to his career yeah, he's got a he's got a range yeah he's able to insert himself into lots of different types of films very successfully but also being like a song and dance person as well like specifically dance requires a great deal of choreography as does action they often call action films a dance in terms of the way that they have to block and plot the action as it plays out yeah and it kind of like means that he can bring bring that to something like Wolverine, which requires a very kind of physical performance. Nothing in Mission Impossible 2, watching Dugray Scott, even in that final fight, makes me think that he has even that physical presence to kind of do that role what it needed. Yeah. Because he was essentially, Hugh Jackman was the guy that carried that series because it was always the subpar superhero series. It was always that kind of like second tier one. And it was it was him that carried it through really until it's finally reached its peak. Yeah, I think DJ Scott he's, he's sounds harsh, but he's more of a B movie actor. Yeah, yeah, he doesn't have that presence or that range, and you know he's, he's doing an all right job here. But it's one of those things where I feel like they could have got someone better for this role. I think. Yeah, yeah, he's not he's not the strongest part of the film. I feel like though some of that is not his fault <laughs> he reminds me of gerard butler actually yeah he always has me as well yeah, yeah. very i mean the the both scottish but yeah very similar look mm. as well i think gerard once gerard butler burst on the scene it was kind of over for him you know yeah. <laughs> that, that it was really like the nail in the coffin of his hollywood career which is a shame because i think dugo scott's probably a step above Gerard Butler, but... I don't know. I think, could Dugray Scott make Den of Thieves? I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think he was just put in that position where you've got... after He had his big break and then blew it and then it's just felt out of place ever since. Yeah, yeah. It's a shame, really, but yeah, it's just one of those things where, yeah, it wasn't to be. Yeah, like I say, he it does that kind of like simmering tension well 
in, in his roles. I've seen him yeah. play bad guy elsewhere as well. But something that I think really undercuts this film in terms of the setting up of its villain anyway is that the relationship between Ethan Hunt and Ambrose, whatever his name is, is so wishy-washy and ill-defined. It feels like it's missing several key scenes. Like, yeah. for example, I'm going to use Bond and Goldeneye as a reference because they clearly did when they were writing the film. <laughs> um, but yeah, <laughs> they, we have this situation, much like Goldeneye, where the villain of the piece is a disavowed or ex-member of the organization that our hero is a part of. With Goldeneye, though, it does the hard work or the homework and the background of making sure that it sets up the relationship between James Bond and Sean Bean's character, Alex Travell. Is it Travell? Trevelyan. Trevelyan. Yeah, Alex Trevelyan. Uh, and between Bond and Alex Trevelyan, it sets up that, that role with that brilliant prologue before the film begins. I feel like this film, Mission Impossible 2, is missing that. It's missing a interaction between these two characters. And when we look at even John Woo's films like Broken Arrow, even that does the whole my adversary is somebody that I was close to think. It opens with a punch up between Christian Slater and John Travolta. It needed that kind of energy to it with this film. Like the idea that, oh, it's two people that are going up against each other that are essentially like the light and dark version of the same person. Oh, it's going to be a a real battle between them, but because we haven't seen that background of them, we haven't seen those those times that they've butted heads or their styles have really led to conflict, because the film doesn't have any of that, by the time they actually start talking to each other, like the midway point, it doesn't it feels like neither here nor there. They're acting like there's yeah. some big like reverence to this and like there should be some like it's it's really big, it's over the top, it's almost so operatic kind of thing. But I don't feel any of it because I haven't seen you guys talk to each other at all, ever. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I think what they should have done really would be they should have dumped that rock climbing sequence and have that and then maybe have the big stunt be part of that as well. Yeah, yeah. To open the film and then have your titles and then maybe cut to the the, the plane sequence or something like that. Um, Even the reveal where D. Gray Scott takes off the Tom Cruise mask because he's not been introduced it's like yeah who cares yeah it's like okay it's not tom cruise but who the fuck is this person <laughs> but yeah who, who is this dude it's like oh my god it's some guy i don't know <laughs> you know it's yeah like, some guy i've never seen before who is he yeah so structurally i think the film has quite a few issues in that regard and yeah it's interesting that you mentioned goldeneye because i wrote another I wrote about another sequence that completely rips off Goldeneye. I mean, I feel like the Mission Impossible series was... It's kind of operating in the shadow of... Especially Goldeneye as well, I think, because Goldeneye was such a big deal at the time. I think people forget now how big of a deal that film was. And it it was, it cast a huge shadow for at least five or six years, I'd say. Mm Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I mean, the, the sequence that really rips it off is that flirty car chase between Ethan and <laughs> Naya, which is reminiscent of the Goldeneye car chase, but seems to be far more reckless. Yes. I mean, not that the other sequence wasn't, because I remember you have the cyclists and all that in that film, but 
this one seems to be it's one of the only real bum notes in the film for me i'd say because it makes the two main characters a little bit unlikable in terms of how reckless they are and i just feel the whole and it's supposed to be this dance when she's hanging off the cliff and stuff and he gets her out of the car and it's like oh and she's like and i'm like you started it You fucking rammed into his car. And they seem <laughs> so, to as well be having this like intimate conversation whilst they're like driving down this cliff face at like what is eighty yeah. miles an hour, and they're talking to each other like, "Hey, I want you to be part of my team. I don't want to be part of your team. You guess you'll have to catch me first. I'm like, how can you hear each other? Always makes me laugh when they do that in films because really, if you did it in real life, you'd be oh, like, you should be able to hear. <laughs> be like you what <laughs> what hey <laughs> they, they've got two-way radios in the car that's what it is oh they are yeah. oh that was it yeah they're fitted as standard in any film vehicle yeah that's it there's that mention of um i don't even know this number <laughs> but yeah the film is littered with moments like that that just kind of like catch me on this particular watch again though i can talk about this film and talk about like, oh, here's structurally what I would have done different. Here's structurally what I would have done in terms of writing the film and that kind of thing. I know it's always a silly place to come and look at a film and say, here's how I would have done it. But I could do that all day. But at the same time, I have to recognise that it's one of those films I enjoy watching. It doesn't matter <laughs> so much that it doesn't make complete sense. It'll never be more than a yeah, three yeah. out of five film for me, but it still does the job for what it is. Yeah. You know, and it's very, very, like, year 2000 from shot one. Even the style of his glasses that he uses, it's like, <laughs> whoa, they are the most 2000s <laughs> pair of sunglasses ever. His hair, those glasses, the music. I mean, it's probably the wrong point to talk about the music, but there's moments, especially early on, where... I think even in that car chase where Hans Zimmer's doing porn music for some weird reason. <laughs> it's like he's yeah. scoring like American Pie or something like that for those moments like yeah it's it's weird and it has like um that kind of like looney tunes pratfall music at different times as well like yeah. it's really like playing for the gag and then at the same time you have that whole like lisa gerrard really kind of like wailing woman this part's emotional kind of thing going behind the film that gladiator thing i'm writing some sketches for gladiators so i'll put them in this film <laughs> And I will say it does lead to probably the worst credit that I've ever seen in any film whatsoever. And that is that at the very end, and the very end of the uh, the credit scroll, it does have theme from Mission Impossible 2, composed by Lalo Schifrin and Fred Durst. (laughs) That has got to be like one of the worst credits I've ever seen for anything. (laughs) Lalo Schifrin. And Fred Durst. We're talking about a very strange period in, I'd say, American music as well. Like, yeah. with all the the new metal stuff, especially with bands like Limp Bizkit, it's just a very weird time for stuff like that. Do you remember how big the craze was through the eighties, nineties, and then early noughties, where I think it came to a head and disappeared? But do you remember how crazy it was that, like, every big film came out with a music from and inspired by album yeah and yeah. it'll just be like all pop like pop hits and stuff like that i mean this film feels like it's re- that like that is the peak <laughs> of of that whole thing and it's only the way the only way is down from here well they still do that occasionally i know like the barbie soundtrack is doing something similar yeah, but it, it feels like it's more of a feature for those films and like guardians of the galaxy yeah. is actually part of the film to have that and like was it iron man 2 with the acdc 
thing. But yeah, so it must be something that they still do every every once in a while. But yeah, this is this is that time as well. When, and and also it was when it doesn't happen so much now, but you had a lot of bands and artists tying in a song with a film. Yeah, in this one we get two. I mean, this one was made in '99, but yeah, it's, it evokes that period. Yeah, that that turn of the millennium thing is um, so strong, <laughs> so very strong. <laughs> it is. At least we know why you want to hate him. You know, because hate is all the world has even seen lately. How is that not one of the best songs that you've ever heard? <laughs> to be fair, few. I mean, other than Bond, obviously, few films manage to like work the actual series into the song so so kind of like precisely and well it's a delicate balance andy and limp biscuit the genius of the genius of fred durst he's, he's found that way i mean to be honest limp biscuit aside i mean the fact that the mission impossible tv show was very fortunate to have it's, it seems to be a thing with, with 60s shows. They used to have really good film composers working on the music or at mm. least the theme. Yeah, the fact that the, the Mission Impossible theme is a, is a Lalo Schifrin composition is is great. And the, I think the thing I like about it, even though the Mission Impossible TV series was created in the wake of Bond Mania, unlike a lot of other things at the time, the actual theme tune itself doesn't try and rip off the James Bond theme song. It does its own thing. And it's iconic in its own terms. It gets used so much. I mean, I think it gets used more than the James Bond theme when it comes to like, you know, when you have on a TV show or another film when they do a spy bit. Yeah. I think I even watched Shaun the Sheep earlier because my son loves Shaun the Sheep. I think they use, they do like a, a rip-off <laughs> version of it when they do something, you know, when they do something spy-esque. It's in Wayne's World, for sure. Well, it's a Paramount film, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, of so course. It, they, they're probably allowed, but that theme has is, is, is transcended even like the film series in terms of how it gets used yeah. on things. So, so it means that even Limp Biscuit can't ruin it too much. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> One thing as well that I did forget to mention about Dougray Scott uh, just before we move on is that um, on the topic of him and Wolverine, John Woo does mention in the documentary that the reason that Dougray Scott was cast in this film is because his eyes tell a very sad story <laughs> and I wrote yes one that ends with Hugh Jackman playing Wolverine close the book uh, the end <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's that that shot where they have like the flames in his eyes yeah. maybe they captured the moment when he realized he'd lost out yeah. on the Wolverine part <laughs> like that day Sorry, Dugray, we're going to have to go with another actor. And they, they shut that moment. The flames are real. They're not optical or digital. And so John Wu was probably like, okay, can, can you dial back the flames for his reflection, if that's all right? And the, the, the prop hand was like, we haven't actually lit them yet. That's just his natural eyes right now. <laughs> um, did you pick up on the whole, like, there's definitely it's not just me it's definitely some real gay subtext going on between him and you know richard roxborough oh yeah yeah definitely even the way the camera portrays them like for example when ambrose dougray scott's character says you know i'm always gagging for it and he's kind of like standing up over richard roxborough who's at crotch height <laughs> sat down <laughs> It's like, ugh, I feel like I'm I'm peeking. I got to peek behind the curtain here of something I don't want to see. And meanwhile, like Naya, her character is like in the next room over, and 
all of this yeah. is happening, this whole discussion about whether she's on their side or if she's just playing them, mm-hmm. etc., etc. I'm like, she's only in the next room. And the wall is literally made of paper. Well, the set was made of polystyrene. <laughs> yeah, that is. I read. I read earlier that that house isn't real. It was made of polystyrene. <laughs> I tell you, that's a, that's a really good job. <laughs> the house was actually just made of polystyrene. She so she hears every word. <laughs> but yeah, their, their whole relationship was a weird one for me. And the kinky finger slice. That's very kinky finger slice. Do you mean like the? Yeah. The finger circumcision thing. Oh, my God. It's, uh, that's really something, all right? <sighs> I will say, it does come to a head for her in a really good way, though. I like the whole reversal thing where Ethan Hunt uses a mask of himself and puts it over Richard Roxburgh's character and Dougray Scott shoots him. Like, that whole reveal, that yeah. whole thing there is great. That's a part of the film that I really do like. It's also got the part where the doves fly out of his ass. But I did write in my notes, like, fair enough with the Tom Cruise mask, but... Where did he get the Richard Roxburgh? Just where does yet? the Richard Roxburgh mask come from? <laughs> I never even thought about it. There's no point in the film where he would have been able to have done that. No. So, oh, it's like, here's yeah, one I made I mean, earlier. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it would be funny if it was a really badly done one as well. It was just done from memory. <laughs> Like one eye's lower than the other. (laughs) It's just Sting. Yeah. Something like that. Some other blonde haired dude. He walks in a room like Sting out of uh, June. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, mean, we should probably talk about Richard Roxburgh. Um, Richard, I died at Reichenbach Falls, Roxburgh. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I think it's interesting as well that you have an Australian actor. In a film that's set in Australia, but is he playing an Australian? Nope. No. He's playing Prince Philip. Because um, <laughs> <laughs> his South African accent is probably one of the worst South African accents I've ever heard put on. It took me a moment to realise he was doing South African. I was like, oh, what's going on with his voice? In his first couple of lines, he sounds somewhere between Prince Philip and Prince Charles. Yes, yeah, he does. You know, I I do I do like these things like you know, uh, will you, will you do me at the bunhole? I'm gonna include the sound of a Range Rover flipping over while you're talking. Then just to really give that kind of Prince Philip effect. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but and then you also have Brendan Gleeson. I mean, that whole side of the film as well. It feels like a waste of Brendan Gleeson. I know that this is like. You know, Brendan Gleeson's on the rise at the moment and people are figuring out how to use him in certain films. I know he'd done Braveheart previously, but in terms of, like, the big budget films, he's not where he is now in terms of, like, with, you know, Banshees of Inisherin and stuff like that where people know exactly what he's capable of. This was pre-28 Days Later. I think that's where he really took off, I think. Yeah. Brendan Gleeson's one of those people that's just looked the same age for about 30-odd years. He's got the Patrick Stewart effect. Yeah where he just looks like Brendan Gleeson no matter what decade he's in. I feel like he was like, how old was he here? Like 32. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, he he just doesn't seem to have aged, but I do feel like he is wasted in this film. It's kind of a nothing role. And yeah, instead it's, you know, it's do gray Scott show everybody out the way. (laughs) Do gray Scott is here to stay. But one of the, in particular, one of the sets, there's one set in this film though, that I really don't like. Yeah. And we've talked earlier about 
how they built Ambrose's house on out of polystyrene on this island. And it looks great from the outside as well. But there's one set that I just can't make head nor tails of, and that is the lab. The lab where the chimera virus is made. It's the dingiest lab lit by neon lights. There's no chance anybody working there. It's the Resident Evil yeah, lab. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> but, but even the Resident <laughs> Evil lab had bright lights, at least. This one, yeah. there's no chance that anybody's coming out of there without full-blown feline aids. <laughs> yeah, no one's doing any effective lab work in there. Because like, I get that it's lit like that, for the later sequence with the action scene, because maybe that's like when all the lights are off and it's like, you know, no one's working in there, but it's lit exactly the same way at the start of the film. <laughs> so, <laughs> for me, that's just where John Woo's atmospherics take over actual practicalities. Yes, yeah. There's something that's a bit Joel Schumacher about him, like in the way that he shoots some things, like the heightened thing and even the use of lighting there's there's things where there's like spotlights moving yeah like, it reminded me so much of like batman forever or batman and robin yeah because that has a with, lot of that. where you've got impractical lighting that that's adding mood but just kind of looks goofy at the same time there's a certain like way he moves his camera at times especially around do gray scott when he's saying things and you hear like as the camera moves slightly to one side you hear a whoosh or something like that and then the way he frames someone like um as they talk to each other it's almost like a very anime style as well yeah yeah but i can definitely see the joel schumacher there's definitely this element of kind of like overproduced overbuilt overdirected camp element that's going yeah, it's on a campness to it isn't it yeah it's mission impossible to the uh the lgb <laughs> it is it is it definitely is it's got to be because richard roxborough and dugray scott have more sexual chemistry than you know tom cruise and any other character in the film <laughs> is this the um the Mission Impossible film for, for Pride Month. <laughs> <laughs> Have we timed it yeah, like this? Just, this just right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it, there's, there's, it's, there's so much like, yeah, it's really camp and really cheesy. So I think it's one of those films as well that maybe, because it plays so much better for me this time, but maybe you have to be in a certain kind of mood. To oh, watch for sure. It. Yeah, for sure. The one thing talking about ethan hunter's character as well like i talked about how um in this particular film i don't like him no and it's a wonder that the film works around him for me so well because that character is one that kind of gets on me tits in this film i mentioned in my intro that naya as a character love interest character is sold into the sex trade by ethan hunt <laughs> who is essentially like an international spy but that is legitimately what happens yeah he falls in love with naya who is recruited by IMF because she has a previous relationship, an ex-relationship, which is, I think, alluded to that it might have been somewhat abusive. And then after Ethan Hunt's already fallen in love and they've already slept together and they've already began a relationship, essentially, he then <laughs> sends her to do Grey Scott to immediately bed him as well. And it is literally being sold into like a sex trade. She is being pimped out for queen and country, <laughs> you know, or should I yeah. say for president and whoever. <laughs> it's such an odd thing, and it's so very not Ethan Hunt. It's so very not an Ethan Hunt thing to do. Yeah. Um, because the whole thing about him is he's, he's essentially like the um, the Jack Ryan almost, you know, he's a, he's a bit of a boy scout, yeah. but his thing is he can't bear the idea of somebody dying on his watch. Is this another James Bond? influence because 
in um, Tomorrow Never Dies, there's a similar plot point, but the main difference is that it's Bond who is the one that's yeah. tasked with bedding. Well, he's tasked with bedding the wife of the villain because yeah. they had a prior relationship. And I'm thinking, hmm, have they borrowed that but then altered it but actually made it worse? Yeah, made it even somehow like, even more creepier. In terms of the inappropriate, yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think they've like cribbed a plot element and it's um, kind of come back around and bit them in the arse. Yeah. Because, yeah, that really doesn't work for me in this film. Like, that's something that, like, actively takes away from the enjoyment when I think about it, because I feel icky. Yeah, I mean, considering what they set her up as in the first, like, her first opening ten minutes, she really just gets shat upon for the rest of the film, to be honest. like Yeah, she has no agency from that opening onwards. Yeah, I wonder whether that's also something that's maybe plays on weird now because obviously at the time she was known as i mean up until very recently she was known as tandy newton yeah. but because it's tandy i think the h is silent oh is it tandy oh so uh, it's tandy yeah i think it's tandy way oh tandy way oh, okay um yeah I, it's one of the, I, one of those things i looked up on wikipedia you know they did the phonetics yeah <laughs> i, I should i should have done but I, I'm, I'm always silly on my homework like that but yeah i'm wondering whether that's another little point of like i mean not not that you know there's a lot of roles like this at the time where, yeah, when you look back at them, it's like, oh, that's not not the best woman's role, really. But um, it's one of those things that you look back on, maybe, and go, yeah, it was a good experience, but, yeah, that character's a little bit... I hate saying the word problematic, but I can't really yeah, think of any other word to say. say. Um, I mean, you can enjoy things with an older problematic and that kind of thing, but yeah, that whole element of the film is something that's just... It feels like a bit of a relic now. The last, like, half an hour does lose its way because it, there is a moment where she does have agency when she decides to infect herself. And at that moment, you think, right, she's now in control. But then it just loses it, and you have that whole keeps cutting back to her on a cliff face. And it's like, oh, they, they could have not done that. They could have done something much better with that character. Yeah, they don't even milk that whole scenario for all of its tension because no. they have the whole release her in the middle of Sydney in a very public place so that she infects everybody situation. But any time it cuts to her, she's just on her own on a cliff face. I love that as well. Like, I think that's the like it makes the villains look really stupid as well. It's like, yeah, we've put her in the middle of the city. <laughs> cuts to she's gone out of the city, mate. Yeah. She's in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> she took off. We're in Australia. Took a five minutes stroll. <laughs> <laughs> she's it's in like, the middle of the outback. <laughs> that, that that's the thing as well Th this plot probably not the best plot to use when you're setting your movie in australia yeah because there's a, a whole lot of nothing yeah not many people live there <laughs> <laughs> and it's you know there's that scene in gallipoli isn't there when um they're right in the outback and um they come across this old man living in the middle of the of the outback and they actually tell him about World War One because he didn't know it had it, it didn't know anything about it, and that's Australia. That, that is Australia. Because <laughs> I think it's like I remember it's, a, it's a, the best scene in Gallipoli for me. It's like yeah. they go past. It's like oh, what, what's going on? What you, why are you dressed like that? Kind of thing. It's like yeah, there's a war on, mate. <laughs> it's like, oh, it's like, I'll really? get me coat. Yeah, it's been going on for two. It's been going on for two years. <laughs> you know that kind of thing. So that that's Australia, and it's like if you're setting a film about this killer virus that could potentially it's not the best location to have it in i mean if you're setting a film about a killer anything and it's set in australia it's like if there's if there's a certain type of person that is hardened to any killer biological <laughs> creature or anything whatsoever it's australians they're used to the whole idea yeah. of everything being out to kill them <laughs> yeah <laughs> they, they get it yeah just another day in australia <laughs> 
Uh, one last thing that I did want to mention, though, as well, in terms of the... Uh, whilst we're on the subject of death, when I was watching the making of, I was actually surprised by how much of the um, stunt work in the film was against green screen and blue screen and that type of thing. It still had Tom Cruise doing things that were in other traditional films stuntmen would have been taking that role because you know he's required to jump like 60 feet from a platform all that kind of thing however i do feel like the crews of mission impossible 2 you know he wants to entertain people with some gnarly stunts whereas the crews of like mission impossible fallout you know he wants to touch the face of god (laughs) with some yeah some stunt that he's essentially committing suicide on a cinematic level and it's just not happening for him yeah i think that's where him and john woo didn't see eye to eye because i imagine all that green screen stuff would have been john woo yeah influenced and he's probably like i'm okay i'm doing the stunt myself but i'm not super okay with doing it in front of a green screen yeah um i'd rather be doing it in real life and there's there are elements of that i mean i think for me like the precursor to all that crazy tom cruise stuntness like on the edge stuff is the is that knife scene at the end yes which is a real knife going like in his eye and all that's literally keeping it from going into his eye is a cable that's attached to the knife yeah and it's a quarter of an inch from his eyeball yeah and Dugay scott was ordered to put as much pressure on it as possible to make it look real <laughs> but it's just being held back by his cable i imagine that Dugay scott was like fueled by enough rage at that point after losing the wolverine gig that he might have just uh oh. he, he, i think he probably tried I think he probably, he was like, put, put all my weight yeah. on it, he said. <laughs> I'm going to throw everything at this. <laughs> probably the director asked, um, all right, that take was really good, but uh, Mr. Scott, if you could stop smiling uh, whilst we do that. <laughs> I mean, I suppose you could say it's a, it's a transitional film in that regard. Yeah. It's that stepping stone between Mission Impossible 1 and three because yeah, three, yeah, like I said before, even though it's part of this initial like finding its feet stage, three is very much part of the rest of the series because it sets up the template yeah doesn't do it perfectly but then it the rest of the films follow that template and build on it i think i think that's really where it goes and yeah the stunts get crazier you have that crazy running scene in the third one as well yeah i know everybody always says that there's always a running scene in a tom cruise film but that's probably my favorite (laughs) it's just it's just great yeah (laughs) I think the other big difference, which is why this film's probably also looked at as the outlier, stylistic differences aside, is the fact that it's not really a team film. No. Like the team part of it's very subdued marginal. And it's and it's the smallest team in the whole series as well. You've literally got Luther and Mr. Nondescript Australian. Yeah. (laughs) I mean I'm thank God it's Ving Rames as well because he kind of carries a lot of screen presence with him. And he's just always a joy to see on screen. He always does play these kind of characters really, really well. But yeah, this is the Tom Cruise show um, more than it is in any other film, really. Yeah, and I think it's because it's Tom Cruise's is most intense and is most, I think, and also because it is the kind of the start of this thing. It's like it's it's Tom Cruise and it is most showy-offy. Things are not good at home. Which is also (laughs) enhanced by the John Woo-ness. Yeah of it all so it's like overdrive isn't it it's like it emphasizes it which is why maybe it's not the best mix of it because you need something a little bit more grounded to to hone in that tom cruise craziness yeah i think that's what we found as well over the last few years yeah uh for sure 
Okay, so now that we've discussed Mission Impossible 2, it's time to move over to the stats and the facts for this film. So this is the part of the show where we go through the box office and the critical reception for the film when it was first released in the year 2000. First, I'm going to go through the critical response. On Rotten Tomatoes, the film has a 56% tomato meter reading, and that is after 155 reviews, which is quite high for a film released in 2000. It holds an average rating of 5.9 out of 10. Now, the critic consensus is that your cranium may crave more substance, but your eyes will feast on the amazing action sequences. Which, which is, is right for me. You know, it's a, <laughs> it's a crazy old film. Now, here's where things get interesting, because we're going to move over to the Roger Ebert review now as well. And, you know, things can go one way or the other with Roger Ebert. You never quite know where he's going to fall on any particular film. Yeah. And on this one, he gave it a three out of four. Ooh. Ooh so, and he, I think he actually preferred it to Mission Impossible. He loves a bit of spectacle, how Roger does. He does, he does. So, he says that if the first film was entertaining as sound, fury, and movement, then this one is more evolved, more confident, and more sure-footed in the way that it marries minimal character development to seamless action. It is a global movie, flying no flag, requiring little dialogue, featuring characters who are Pavlovian in their motivation. It's more efficient than the Bond pictures, but not as much pure fun. But in this new century, I have a premonition that we'll be seeing more efficiency and less fun in a lot of different areas. The trend started about the time college students decided management was sexier than literature. What? I have no idea what, what he's talking about. You <laughs> was on some drugs, mate. You <laughs> must have been on some strong painkillers when he He's wrote tripping. that. Tripping. And um, general audiences, they gave the film a 42% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. That's after 250,000 reviews and with a 3.1 out of 5 average rating. And it holds a 6.1 out of 10 rating on IMDb, which I think has gone up since the last time I checked uh, by a point or two yeah. over the years. Although I think it's, the, it's still the lowest out of the whole series. For though. sure. I was expecting it to be around like 5.1, to be honest, um, in terms of the reputation that the film holds. Yeah. But yeah, so it's um, slightly more positive or down the middle than I thought it was going to be. Uh, but at the same time, I do think that the film's a lot of fun, so that makes sense. Now, moving over to the box office for the film, I'm going to hand it over to you, Andy. So the film had a budget of $125 million, uh, and that is in contrast, if you want to contrast this with the, the first film, the budget of Mission Impossible 1 was $80 million, but then again, they are two completely different animals. Like yeah. we were saying before, Mission Impossible 1 is more of a thriller with some action sequences, whereas Mission Impossible 2 is action sequences with some talking in between. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> with some mugshot grinning in between. <laughs> and it was released on the 24th of May 2000, which is weird to say. Uh, 2000 seems such a long time ago. Yeah, it really does. We're so old. But I remember when we were little kids, like 2000 seemed so futuristic. It did, yeah. Cars would fly. Growing up in the 90s, it's like, wow, year 2000. <laughs> but yeah, it seems very antiquated and quaint now. But um, the opening week is a bit weird because it was a long holiday. So yeah, on Box Office Mojo, it's like split into two. Yeah, there's a, a gross of 82.7 million, but then there's a total gross of 103.7 million. And it says it's been out for two weeks 
it's like the opening weekend, but they've added like five days before the opening yeah, week, yeah, like before the weekend days. sort of thing to to boost the figure sort of thing. So it's one of those situations. So even so, for that time period, it's still a very good opening week. Yeah, it's really really healthy. Even now, when we're, I think uh, looking at some films like barely scraping a hundred million, and this is like. You know, we're talking 23 years ago. Uh, I mean, it did better than The Flash. I'm wondering as well, I haven't adjusted, but I think this might actually be, if it's not the most successful Mission Impossible film, I think it's probably the second after Fallout, because I think overall this film made 215.4 million domestic overall, 330 million, 330.9 million internationally. So for a worldwide total of 546.3 million in 2000, which is quite a lot of money. That's much more money than the Bond films were making at the time. The, the Bond films were more like the high 300s to 450. I think Die Another Day made about 456. Yeah. Or something like that. So way like quite a bit more successful than the Bond films, uh, with a similar budget as well. So despite its slightly lackluster critical reception, mm-hmm. did exceptionally well, which makes it all the more baffling as to why a sequel wasn't made sooner. Yeah. But it, like we were saying before, it must have been because of that whole nine eleven, Jason Bourne trying to like yeah where do we fit into this the whole thing where do we yeah because this film is a little bit like dying of the day where it's like it's such a stylistic goofy cheesy thing like where do you go from there and that kind of situation i think but yeah just to add some context the films that this opened up against so unsurprisingly this film opened at number one number two was I mean, this list is a real mix of just weird, odd, like I think seen as oddity films now, yeah. but and then a couple of films where it's like, oh yeah, I know that one. Um, so yeah, number two was Dinosaur. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, that is an odd one. Number three was Shanghai Noon. Uh, number four was Gladiator in its fourth week. Mm-hmm. Um, number five was Road Trip. Oh yeah, well, 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 there was a sex comedy every month back back in the year two thousand. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Number six was Small Time Crooks, which I've not heard of. No, me neither. Number seven was Frequency. Number eight was U571. Oh, yeah, that's a controversial film. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, number nine was Center Stage, which I do not know what that was. No, nope. that's a no. Nope. And number 10 was where the heart is which is not, not what i'm singing is not that but no um, no that's a that's a british tv show called where the heart is yeah i was gonna but, say uh, a film <laughs> did called they make where a the film heart of is. where the heart is <laughs> i was long here i long here where the heart is oh gosh it just makes me think of like my grand watching this yeah it's like blockbuster film starring Pam Ferris and Sarah Lancashire. <laughs> yeah. That's the top 10. So I'd say apart from Gladiator, not a particularly strong week. So no, that is a week where you can make a difference. Considering that's May. It's going to be May. Yeah, I mean, I think Mission Impossible 2 really benefited from 
that weak. Yes, for sure. Uh, that very weak um, slate. I mean, outside of Gladiator, which had already been out for four weeks anyway, the rest of the slate is kind of a bit very meh. Mm. And I know Disney were banking on Dinosaur being a, a huge hit, uh, but it just that was a, a real dud. Uh, yeah. of a film in in all aspects so yeah mission impossible was very lucky i think as well yeah it's very fortunate of them yeah so i, yeah, I definitely think if you adjust this for inflation it's got to be i, I did check it's a it's, it's it's about 956 million it's nearly nearly at the billion mark yeah so def easily because i'm pretty sure fallout's more like 700 or top yeah. 600s so even that like five years ago if you adjust that it's still not going to be quite to that level so I, it's weird to say that yeah it's, this is probably the most successful of all the Mission Impossible films yeah yeah I would I would say so it's, yeah, it certainly seems that way once you start to like you say tinker about with the uh, inflation I know that it isn't an exact science like popping it in but it certainly is a much healthier gross than people have really given this film credit for as well because it is one that has kind of just been brushed under the rug by Paramount a little bit as the series has uh, become more legitimate in its um in its kind of action status. But yeah, it it is interesting to compare actually because like I said we compared uh, the budget of this film with Mission Impossible 1, but if we also compare the box office of that film, considering it was made for 45 million dollars less or say 40 million if you just for like 4 years, but that film made 457.6 million in 1996 and that comes to like just under 900 million as well yeah so that that did exceptionally well as well can this and also the fact that it had a very small budget you know yeah relatively yeah relatively yeah Yeah. for sure Uh, yeah and really to be honest if you actually look at the mission impossible series as a whole the only real box office disappointment is the third one i think yeah uh, which i think underperformed because that was when um there was a lot of controversy around Tom Cruise at the time, and he got didn't he get dropped by Paramount for a period? And well, yeah, I mean, it was like um, uh, th- this was essentially like this mis- this period right here was like a peak for him, and then things started to get rockier for him in terms of his box office draw, as the more Scientology, the whole Katie Holmes thing, <laughs> um, the whole the divorce from Nicole Kidman, the whole yeah. Katie Holmes thing, the, her pregnancy and all that, jumping on the couch. Mm. All of that started to rear its head, and people were just like, "Oh, who is this kook?" It, it's like it goes into a really rocky period after that. And Mission Impossible Three really took the hit on that one, and um, I think it also had some fallout from this film, as like it grew to be known as the dud, the the Mission Impossible film that isn't very good. <laughs> yeah, and it is definitely the outlier, and there's For no sure. denying that. But the numbers can't lie, and and you know it did very. Well, I mean, I think as more films have have come out as well, maybe reaction to the film, and it always happens like this, like the reaction softens, I think. Yeah. Over time. Because I remember when this, I mean, I never went to see this film when it came out, but I I remember it being a huge deal. Yeah, I do. I don't remember it being like, oh, this is really shit compared to the first one. The VHS was everywhere on that market. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, I don't remember it being like, harshly received by audiences because i think when we were growing up that was more of the thing that you paid attention to rather than you know it's very different to how it is now yeah it is yeah. We, you know we, we didn't have youtube we didn't have 
the internet as it is now. <laughs> oh my gosh, um, we've gone into old men yell at cloud status. Well, it's not it's not even yelling at cloud. We just didn't have that information or no. that, that context. You know, and in some ways, that things had a little bit more of a shelf life. And also, there, there was a there was a certain kind of um, I'd say innocence about it because yeah. everything now is so go for the throat. Yeah, everyone's got sharpened knives for things, and you know, like I say, you know, there's so much black and white thinking. But this is this is my whole um, old men shouts at cloud moment. In that, <laughs> even when I look at films like this, which I call like a six out of ten, a very enjoyable film with some rather large issues, I look at this and I think, God, these were the like films that were regarded as the. Um, not being very good back in the year 2000. And I'm like, God, the film's now like Ant-Man, Quantumania, Ugh. which I watched like three quarters of the other day and just I lost the thread. I was like, why am I watching this? I've just lost the plot. Yeah. I see shit like that and I'm like, God, even our bad films were good. You know? <laughs> even yeah, our bad I mean, films were good. We're at the point at the moment where there's so many, like, especially big budget, where they're kind of live action films just... Yeah, yeah, marginally. <laughs> like borderline. Something like Ant-Man could almost be like referenced as a live-action animation hybrid film because <laughs> it's like... Yeah, yeah, it really is. You know, it's it's an animated film with some live actors in it. <laughs> Mary Poppins style. <laughs> There's not even really any in the way, anything in the way of like set building or anything like that where you go, ooh, that's, no. that's cool. There's no it's, fucking costumes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's such a fucking weird film. But that's become the, yeah. the norm now. This is, this is what the industry's been building towards. And you could say that COVID... The is, sausage factory. Exactly. It's been, it's been... Cinema's been heading this way for a very long time now. And I'm just glad that now, like... It's starting to collapse. Definitely, definitely starting to... It's starting to collapse, and films with a bit more form are starting to take plaudits away kind of thing. You know, like your Top yeah. Gun Maverick. It's, it's Tom Cruise again, but like your Top Gun Maverick. But there's definitely a sea change happening. Yeah, and I can the studios it. don't know what the fuck is going on. Yeah. Which is quite amusing at the same time. It's great. It's like, there's, there's nothing better than watching a, a huge company of people who don't actually know nothing about what they're actually selling. And it's good to see the world fall apart around the likes of your David Zaslavs and you know, that oh, kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. I and mean, that's just been a, that's been a disaster. Yeah. <laughs> Tr- truly. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's just interesting. And again, despite all its goofiness and, and cheesiness, Mission Impossible 2 has a certain old school charm about it, I'd say. And again, it's it's a great little time capsule if you want to know what action films of the early 2000s and late 90s were. It's, yeah. it's so, it, it reeks of it. It has a uh, real flavour to it, you know. <laughs> yeah. And um, and it really kind of ties in well. I, I think that's the thing. If you watch it as like a follow-up to Mission Impossible, and if this had been where the series had ended, for example, all right, yeah, I can yeah. see how some people would feel badly about it. But I think if you look at it like a... Um, an extension of the whole like John Woo way of making films as well. If you look at it like from Broken yeah. Arrow to Face Off to this, it does feel like very much part of that world as as well as being like a Tom Cruise vehicle. And in that way, yeah, it is absolutely like a a great staple of what action films were in the late nineties specifically as well, and what what a John Woo Western action film was. Yeah. Because uh, he continues to be a great action director, and he continues to be a great director, and uh, who I want to see more of. And I do wonder if we'll see him in like Western cinema again, if that will come back around. But yeah, this is this is still a, a lot of fun, defi- despite its faults. And uh, and and yeah, so I, I I could still easily recommend it. And also, the only other thing I didn't mention is that the uh, 
the best line goes to Anthony Hopkins playing the head of <laughs> MIF for this week. <laughs> the head of DFS. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently it was only meant to be on set for like two days, but because they had some technical difficulties, he ended up having to be there for five. But it, it doesn't sound like he was... Uh, it looks like he was having a, a pretty good time of it anyway. Yeah, having a lot of fun. But yeah, he definitely has the best line of the whole film was, you know... This is not mission difficult, <laughs> Mr. Hunt. This is mission impossible. <laughs> like, yeah, it is. It really is. a great line. <laughs> <laughs> and said it, you know, in that and said in that Anthony Hopkins style as well. It's just with a little kind of like almost a wry smile to it. To be honest, he's playing Hannibal Lecter on day release, really, isn't he? When he's like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. This is what I do when I'm not chewing off people's faces. I'm ahead of the am I? <laughs> I'm ahead of. Uh, <laughs> I'm ahead of the IMF. IMF. <laughs> IMF. I did. I said MIF, IMF, DFS, MFI, MFI, BNQ, MFI, BFI, Wix. Yeah, it's like we're not. It's like Ethan Hunt's the Impossible Mission Force, and then Barry Smith. Find me this very specific ladder. Yeah, and then Barry Scott. Um, the home base force. Your mission, if you choose to accept it, you need to find me these particular love screws. <laughs> Bang, and the dirt is gone. <laughs> Bang, and the bad guy's gone. <laughs> okay, and that's all we have time for on this latest episode of Popcorn Digest. Uh, join us next time as we'll be strapping on our VR headsets once more as we'll be traveling into the world of Ready Player One. Which, uh, after the conversation we've just had now, feels very apt to be yes. moving over to. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but until then, I've been Agent Gareth Green. And I'll be attending a car crash near you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening. <laughs>